Welcome to the Advent Sermons and Conversations podcast. This is our second edition of Meet the Pastors. This week, we have Pastor Gary on. I'm Deanne. I'm Kevin. I'm Pastor Gary. Thank you for joining us today, Pastor Gary. My pleasure, Kevin. Excited to podcast? (laughs) Yeah, I am, actually. Cool. We're very happy to have you on. So we'll start off with the most basic question that I'm sure you get asked is, why did you decide to become a pastor? Actually, I don't think I've been asked that question since about 1982. (laughs) Um, Wow. All right. (laughs) But um, when I was in, I've always wanted to be a pastor. So it was always there. Uh, In fifth grade, we had to, at some point in the time of the year, our teacher, Mr. Knox, made us write down in a booklet what we wanted to do with our lives. And I wrote down, I want to be a Lutheran pastor and have never deviated from there. So, wow. So all why, the way through, <laughs> why did you want to be one? What, what drew you to that of, of all the other professions? Yeah, that's a good question, Kevin. I think working with people, um, working with the church, my family's always been involved with the church. We have pastors in the family. I have 12 cousins who are pastors, uncles who are pastors, mm. great uncles, grandparents. And so it's a long line. And so it's historical in some ways. Yeah. But um, just working with people and, and being involved with the church and outreach. That's awesome. I wish I had that kind of clarity <laughs> at 10. <laughs> I have less these days than I did 50 years ago, but 60 years ago. Oh, it's funny how that goes. So where do you go to seminary? I went to seminary at Luther Northwestern. Um, when I started, I was in, these are pre-ELCA days. So I was in the LCA, the Lutheran Church in America. And I mm. started at Northwestern Seminary, which was half of the campus in St. Paul, Minnesota. The other half was Luther Seminary, which belonged to the ALC. And during my years there, the two were in the process of uniting as one. So I started at Northwestern, my second year, I was at Luther Dash Northwestern. My third year, I was at Luther Northwestern with two capital letters. And my fourth year, I graduated from Luther. So Wow. <laughs> you really did <laughs> some history. hopping around. We did some popping around in the same campus. And Speaking of which, I, I know vaguely that you've done a lot of hopping around in your ministry and serving in different places or doing outreach in different places. Would you mind sharing just all the different locations that in the U.S. or otherwise that you've spent time doing ministry Sure, while you're a pastor? I've served parishes in Chicago, uh, in the Bronx, in Brooklyn, and in Manhattan. But I spent 16 years as assistant to the bishop here in the Metropolitan New York Synod. And part of my portfolio was uh, the relationship with our sister um, synods and dioceses and church bodies. Uh, in Europe, Africa, Asia, and Latin America, because here in the Metropolitan Mm. New York Synod, we have fewer now than we did when I started working in the office in 1996. We had actually 17 different languages that were spoken in our synod congregations. Wow. And so we would bring in pastors from Finland, Sweden, Norway, Germany, um, Africa, Latin America, um, and, and Asia from Thailand and Korea. And so my job was to find those pastors, uh, to travel and work abroad, to find them and bring them to the United States to work in our congregations here. So that's how I had my international relationships. 
with the churches, including some where we didn't have pastors. For example, the um, Evangelical Lutheran Church in Peru, which is very small. It's only five congregations. But we have a lot of people who travel back and forth in the Latino community. And so the bishop approached me from that church in Peru to see if we could work out between the Latin American, that is the South American Lutheran churches, of which there are 17 uh, Lutheran church bodies, and the ELCA. And when someone was leaving, say, say John or Juan is moving from New York and moving to Colombia, that I could contact someone in the bishop's office in the Colombian Lutheran Church and say, this guy is moving from New York, he's an active member at Advent, or at Sion, or at Trinidad, and he's moving to Bogota, can you have the Lutheran Church pastor contact him there? Wow. So it uh, made a relationship, and people could be, and they do the same to us. It's a huge network. It was, it's a great, it wow. is still, it still functions. So I actually just got an email from the Lutheran uh, bishop in Venezuela, day before yesterday, saying two families are moving to New York shortly. Uh, here's where they will be staying. Can you contact them? And so it's a good way to welcome so people, cool. and the church is active. Yeah, that's really amazing, and just kind of welcoming people in, have, knowing they know someone in the area. Exactly. One of the strangest things that ever happened during that whole process was we had a church in Brooklyn at the time, which has since closed uh, Christ Lutheran on 59th Street. And it was originally a Swedish congregation. And then gradually that community around 8th Avenue has become very Chinese over the past 40 years or so. And so the church was Swedish-speaking and then opened their doors to, to Chinese-speaking. And so we had a pastor there who spoke Chinese for many, many years. When he retired, the Swedish pastor had also retired earlier and um, we needed to find a pastor who spoke Swedish and Chinese. And we actually found one in Germany who came over no here. No way. Yeah, we did. And actually came over here, Pastor Chung. And so he uh, held, by that time, the Swedish community had was almost non-existent. But he held like Christmas Eve services and Easter services and uh, a few other uh, the midsummer services in Swedish. He did wow. the English services and he did the Chinese services. <laughs> God puts wow. strangers in front of us. Yeah, I was going to say, what a tall order. <laughs> <laughs> it was That's impossible, but it happened. <laughs> not impossible. That's amazing. The right person was there, yeah, ready. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Yep. How many languages do you speak? I speak 13, but I don't like to get that out. But I suppose with this podcast, it's now public, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's recorded, not released yet, no, you know, no, if you no, want us to no, redact no, no, that. No, not at all. I speak I, 13. Thirteen. So, of the of those thirteen languages, what language do you think would surprise people the most that most people don't know? Um, probably Quechua. What What is Quechua? Quechua. I actually speak the dialect called Chupaca Quechua, which is a wow. indigenous language of the Incas in Peru and Bolivia. And then Chupaca Quechua is a, is spoken in a very small area, maybe. 50 or 60 square kilometers of Peru in the mountains in the Andes. Fewer than 500 people in the world speak it. <laughs> and you're part of the club. I'm part of the club. I, I have to ask, how, how do you come across this language in the first place? And, and how did you have enough exposure to learn it? Um, when I was a foreign exchange student, my senior year of high school, I was in Peru. And I lived with a family in the Huancayo area, which is in the mountains of Peru and in the Andes. 
and they spoke Chupaca Quechua. And so I had to learn it at home. It's a non-written language, um, but that's what we spoke at home and in the street and at church and everywhere else. So that's where I learned it and just continued. Of course, I am still in contact with family and friends there from Huancayo and still speak it. I'm actually in a project uh, with the uh, United Nations. About 10 years ago, they started a project called the Language Project, where they're recording uh, languages that are dying or that are extinct. You know, oh, yeah. We have, we have lots of languages that only one or two people in the world speak. And they consider a language that's fewer than 10,000 people speak as leading toward extinction. And um, so somehow they got hold of my name from, I don't remember who, but I'm one of three people in the United States who speak Chupaca Quechua. So wow. I'm on a team, of an international team, and we've been recording the language for about four years for them and creating a writing system so that it can be written down and the grammar and everything. So that's probably a language nobody would guess I speak. Amazing. How do you find time to do that on top of all the work I see you doing being a pastor here at Advent in St. Jacoby? Well, that one's easy. It's a, you know, initially it was a lot of work um, and a lot yeah. of meetings and getting together, but now it's all done on with the computer and, and, um, and of course we're in New York, so I can just head over to the UN if there has to be a meeting. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. I, I still don't know how to do it. If you, if you could give people one time management tip, because you're someone who accomplished it, does more different things than anyone I know, to be honest, one time management tip for how, how you do it. I'd be curious to know, and I imagine other people would too. I think it's a lot like planning your meals. Just plan ahead, get your day organized to plan ahead. ahead of time. And don't sleep very much. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> what time do you wake up on a typical day, by the way? 3.15. 3.15 a.m. Yep, no alarm clock. Casual. So what do you consider sleeping in? Um, till five. Okay. Till five. Wow. Yeah. Unless you're really sick or it's been when, really late. When night. I was in college, sleeping in was like 11 a.m. or <laughs> <See> noon. <that? laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Now it's gotten a little earlier. In college and seminary, I always looked for those classes that were at eight o'clock or even at, at, at Wittenberg where I went to undergraduate. Some classes were at 7.30, which was really nice. Whoa. You could be done with your classes by 10 or 11 in the morning. Yeah, and you have the whole day. The whole day. Yeah. Yep. I get that now. I didn't understand that when I was in college. I was like, what? No, I'm not taking that class. Right, exactly. I guess I'll change my major. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, how, did you, how did you learn to start waking up that early? You know, I grew up on a farm, and so we had cows to milk and other things to do, and you just get used to it, and you've done it your yeah. whole life. It really helped when I was with the bishop's office because I spent a lot of time every year. Twice a year I was in Tanzania, and for a great amount length of time each time. Yeah. I, I have a house there. And um, because I'd also need to be doing work back here with my secretary, uh, in the office here in New York. Mm -hmm. so, and she was an early riser too, but she could be in at eight or come in at six and start to work at six or seven or eight. And I'd be midday because Tanzania is eight hours ahead of New York. So, so oh, it really wow. worked well, yeah. um, Kevin, with doing that. Or when you're working with the Asian communities, um, particularly the community that I worked with in Japan, the communities, and in Korea, 
uh, and in Indonesia, you're talking times that are 12, 14, 16 hours ahead of time difference. So it's a whole different day, actually. Um, and, and so just keeping that time has just always been uh, helpful in those types of ministries. Because I'm during the day, they're during the day, and you're still in wow. completely different times. It's amazing how that works. What inspired you to study abroad when you were in high school? Um, well, because I come from a, f a long line of immigrants, and my parents have always encouraged us to get to know the world uh, in any way that you can, because the, the world is exciting and interesting, and yeah. um, you, we're part of a global community. Even 65 years ago, they were teaching us that. And so I've always found it interesting to live abroad. Uh, we actually had two foreign exchange students that lived with us in my family um, when I was in high school. And so from that experience, and of course from having most of my family still lives in Europe, well now they're scattered all over the world, but, but are still from Europe. And so I wanted to go someplace else and find someplace that I didn't know. And um, we, there was an organization that brought foreign exchange students to my high school and my high school every year sent one of our students abroad uh, called American Field Service. Was I don't know that it even exists anymore. It's not important. Um, but I applied, and so I made the cut and was invited to go to Peru. So that's what I did. Very cool. <laughs> yeah, everybody, when I was studying abroad for college, everybody was like, aren't you so nervous? And my parents were like, we have computers to connect with our children it's not like when they were in high school or when you were in high school where it's like you're writing letters back and forth I exactly expect. i talked to my parents one time during my year in peru and twice during my time in japan because wow. you're talking the early 70s you know yeah uh, 71 72 and long distance in those days to get to peru they had to do an operator to chicago then chicago connected to miami then miami to bogota and bogota to cali and cali to lima and so it could take days to get a call through you know and it was very wow. expensive and so i only talked to my parents once during that year wow it's really different now uh, you know totally different than yeah. the 24 7 contact exactly 45 today. 50 years later it's really different yeah yeah different game for better or worse it is it is <laughs> I, I think it's really wonderful now because you can have instant access to everything you lose some of the i think you lose some of the cultural pieces some of the um certainly as someone who's lived abroad you, you lose the 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 separation of family and friends that you had in those days, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I wonder if people really get enmeshed in the culture and the society of the new, of the new place where they're living. Yeah. Because you can be instant connection to everybody back in New York it's or instantly Minnesota, back, California, yeah. or Seattle, wherever. Yeah. I could see how that would inhibit being immersed in the community around you. And also some of like, there, there are joys on the other side of risk sure. and going out of your comfort zone, particularly with being with new people or, or communities or culture. And when you constantly, it's nice that you have that safety net. I mean, it feels like a nice thing, but also I think it can take away some of the joys of if you had gone a little bit more out of your comfort zone and disconnected from what's comfortable I think so, Kevin. You know, I'm, I've talked in in recent years, the last ten years, to people who have been foreign exchange students, either in high school or in college, 
Yeah. Uh, thank goodness a lot of our colleges still have programs abroad. But they haven't learned the languages and the cultures as deeply as I think we had to um, because they can come home from school and they can go right to the computer and they're talking to friends back in Los Angeles, you mm-hmm. know, or wherever. So you don't have that. When I went to Peru, I didn't know a word of Spanish. And the wow. family that I was living with, my Peruvian family, picked me up at the airport and we started this five-hour drive into the mountains. They didn't speak English. I didn't speak Spanish. And we got. <laughs> and wow. so my first two weeks were at home to get accustomed to, to mom and dad. And I had two brothers and a sister get accustomed to them and the little community that we lived in. Um, and so I was picking up things. You know, you, you have, you're forced to learn a language, you learn it when you're 17 or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, and then I went to school, and they were speaking a different language. Because at home we spoke Quechua. In the school you speak Spanish. Spanish. Oh, and man. I, what is this? It took me a long time. I bet it took me six weeks to figure out, at home, we're speaking one language, and in school, we're speaking another, and they're not the same. Because <laughs> no one was able to no clarify that for that you because you didn't right, speak exactly. either language. Right. So, I, you know, that's an Imansutiki, but that's also a puerta. I'm pointing at the door, by the way, for you on the podcast. <laughs> but I went to school and thinking it was an Imansutiki, and it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, you were definitely out of your comfort zone. I was out of my zone somehow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, here at Advent, mm-hmm. you serve both the English congregation as well as the Spanish-speaking right. congregation. Yep. Um, what are all the languages you have been a pastor in or ministered in? I haven't done many as a pastor of a parish. I've only been a pastor of a parish that speaks um, Spanish, Italian, uh, Chinese, and English. But when I was in the bishop's office, I would be in the different congregations, um, in the synod, either supplying for the pastors mm-hmm. or um, visiting them on behalf of the bishop. And so there I did other languages, but I've only done four languages as a pastor of my own parishes. Only four. Only. <laughs> for someone who only speaks one fluently, it's that's still a lot. Yeah. I was curious, since here at Advent, um, on some Sundays, you'll both be preaching in English as well as in Spanish. Mm -hmm. How similar are your sermons? Uh, Good question. Obviously, the the three texts or the the psalm, the fourth, if you count the psalm, the four texts um, are the same. But the sermons are very different. And in fact, as, as you both know, after I get done at Advent, I go down to Brooklyn to St. Jacoby and do two more services there, one in Spanish, one in Chinese. And I have four sermons a Sunday, the two here for 9 and 11, the 12.30, and then the four and the seven in Brooklyn. The basis is always the same. If I'm, preach- if I'm preaching on the gospel, I always select based on, my tw- on the 12.30 service here. So I look at the 12.30 service and figure, okay, which of these texts do I want to use? unless there's something special happening. So I'll take that, and then I'll use that same text for the other ones. But then you work it according to the community, you know? The, the, our 12.30 service is very different, the community, than the 9 and the 11, being mostly immigrant, being highly undocumented, being living in, especially these day, this day and age, living in some fear, some of those types of things living in an underground community, um, 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 economy. Um, so it's a very different sermon. 
the Chinese community in Brooklyn is very different. The, the Latino community there is very different. It's fully Mexican. So same text, four different sermons. But I also get bored, so why would you want to preach the same sermon five times? <laughs> it's bad enough hearing it twice. <laughs> to not have to write four different sermons. Um, I mean, there are a lot of similarities, but yeah. But they're adapted. Yep. As an English speaker, it's, it stands out to me, or it's, it's somewhat surprising to me, although I wish it weren't, that even the two sermons that you deliver on Sunday in Spanish are also different because the people and the communities are different. That's right, Kevin. Exactly. Um, yeah. Cause I think it would be very easy to assume that, Oh, at least those, the two Spanish ones would be the same, but even within the language, cause so many different countries and cultures speak it in so many different places. Exactly. There's also different, yep. so much diversity. Exactly. Plus you have to look at what's been happening in the congregation during the week, you know? Yeah. Um, what's been happening at Advent is not the same that's happening at St. Jacoby. They're yeah. Different communities. And what has been happening, say, at 1230 here, maybe there was a death in the community. Well, that affects the 1230 community much differently than it affects the 9 or the 11, or vice versa. Um, or there's been an event or something, an earthquake back home, um, uh, new immigration laws, or at the 9 and the 11, there have been some talk about a new school opening up or whatever. So all those types of things play in as well. What has been the greatest joy of starting? Oh, background for listeners out there. Um, Pastor Gary, it's a you launched a ministry. Is that what it's called? Launched a our Spanish language ministry here starting how many years ago? Six years. Six years ago. So, and now Spanish speaking people comprise about a third of our congregation. So, what, what has been your greatest joy in starting that ministry and seeing it grow? Uh, that's part of it, seeing it grow. Um, but I think that the greatest joy, Kevin, has been watching our English speakers and our Spanish speakers come together at times. That's been the greatest joy. You know, now on council, there are a couple of council members who are Latino. Yeah. Um, we have some shared ministries watching uh, our after-school program or ESL program or our food ministries and how the two communities work together. That has to be the greatest joy because we are one church. Both has a small C as Advent and a large C, meaning the church universal. You know? Yeah. And I feel like recently we've seen more, more and more instances of that at Advent, at least in my five years being here. Yep, I think so. That is true. And that's really exciting. And now if you notice, I don't know if you noticed, DM, but Kevin certainly does. Um, we have now families, there are three, that are now going to the 11 o'clock from the 1230 service with children because the children cannot read or write Spanish. Mm. You know, they speak it, they grew up speaking it, but they're in school. So they, what are they learning to read and write? English. But the parents don't speak English. But the parents say it's important for our children to be able to understand, so they go to the 11 o'clock service. And a few weeks before that, one of the families had uh, two of the kids receiving their first communion at the 11 o'clock in English. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. 
It is. It's one of the few places that, that I know of that this is actually happening. And Advent is one of the few places in the ELCA that I'm aware of. And I'm only aware of what I'm going to say because the bishop's office, our bishop's office, says this every time I or Pastor Danielle are with him. This is one of the few places where we have one congregation but two languages. Many ELCA congregations have multiple languages, but they are generally separate congregations. Or even if they are, for example, like um, some of ours on the island, where they have the same name, they run everything separately. We do everything together, as the church should be, right? Mm -hmm. Amen. It's pretty interesting to me that in 2018, we have technology like the internet that you know, technically makes the whole world connected um, and similar th- also like flying and other things that connect the world so much. And yet there's, there's still so much lack of connection and understanding between people from different places or cultures. It's, it's pretty wild to see the contrast between those two realities. But yeah, I would agree. It's re- it's refreshing to see walls come down and see people interacting here in different ways. Oh, and your part of that, Kevin, as you look at now the internship program, there are some Latinos there, right? Yeah, yeah. We have three languages in the high school internship program, so that's pretty cool. That's how it should be. <laughs> mm-hmm. My so my second question is if, if since this podcast is in is in English, if as we're our two communities here at Advent are getting to know each other better. Is, is there something that you wish more people in the English speaking community at Advent knew or understood about their Spanish speaking brothers and sisters in Christ here? Oh, that's a good question. I I think this is not only for Advent and our English speaking community, but across the country, the spectrum of Mm -hmm. the United States in understanding Latino cultures with an S, everybody says they're Spanish, you know? Yeah, not okay, one culture, right. cultures. Cultures, we have a, one language that unites us, but that's it, the cultures. Mm. Even as we ourselves are different cultures, we may be European-Americans, but we're all different. Yeah. Um, and, and, and if you go to the, the old country, as my father would say, um, they're even within, within Sweden or within Austria, um, where my heritage is from, you have many different cultures, and it's, it's true in our Latino culture. So I think that would be one big thing, Kevin, is for people to understand um, we don't all eat rice and beans. Um, in fact, yesterday, <laughs> yeah. were, you, were you in that conversation? Yeah, the other oh, no. not yesterday, on Monday at the um, after-school program, not the after-school program, at the um, Spanish language class, at mm-hmm. the end of it, uh, Kathy Carpenter came because she and Pastor Margay Whitlock were going to work on the collection of 500 cans of beans. This is a, an announcement here. Uh, remember your beans this month. Um, 500 cans of beans. And so as you saw, Carla and I going back and forth with wording, well, if you're in Puerto Rico, you say beans in one way. If you're from Mexico, you say it another way. The Dominicans say it another way. Those from per- Peru will say it another way. Just one little word. You know? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So... Yeah, I think it's understand that we are not one culture, but many cultures, but united by one language. Thank you. That's important and very valuable. 
My next question is, what is the funniest thing that's happened to you during like a baptism or wedding or funeral or church service you've been officiating? Good question. I have never had something funny happen at a funeral, I don't think. But at a baptism, good. Uh, I had a family who had seven sons and were baptizing them ages two to 10 or 11 or so, a Latino family from Venezuela. And they had named all of the boys Jesus, but gave them all different middle names, and they were going to go by the middle names. And very common in South America, Nelson, Anderson, Johnson, Carlson, names like that, all ending in son, are very common names in in South America. So they had Jesus Anderson, Jesus Carlson, Jesus Johnson, Jesus Nelson. And as I was baptizing each one, I was looking to the mother to get the names right. And about the third one, she said, oh, I give up. Just call them all Jesus. So that's <laughs> what I did was all seven just got Jesus. At a wedding, I there was a wedding one time at a church in Brooklyn that I was doing a wedding at. And it was really hot. It was not air-conditioned. And this is in the middle of July or August. And the groom was sweating profusely. Well, he's probably nervous was part of it. But all of a sudden, we got to the point of the vows, and he said, excuse me a minute, Pastor. He took his coat off. He untied his tie. He took his vest off. He was in a, a tux. And then started unbuttoning his shirt. No. <laughs> right really? in the middle of the wedding. <laughs> I guess that's the only really funny thing. I've had brides and grooms faint, but that's not really funny. But taking your clothes off during the wedding is the groom is not. And maybe it was normal. so he wouldn't faint. <laughs> it might be. Yeah. It might be. Got to do what you got to do. Exactly. <laughs> I know Pastor Danielle mentioned in our interview with her um, that after some experiences uh, during her weddings, she is officiated. Um, Do you have any rules uh, for the couples you are performing the wedding for? I do. And in fact, I don't like weddings other than, than for people who are active members of my congregation. I do not like weddings. Uh, Because you always get these really weird requests, especially from the mothers of the bride. Um, (laughs) So I started long ago. Now, I don't do it here at Evan because I came on as an associate pastor. But all of my other parishes, I've had a layperson handle all of the details of the wedding. I didn't even get involved. And they would do my arguing for me. That's great. Well done. Oh, it worked really well. You know, I paid them, but they got to do the argument. I do not uh, want any of this pop music in a wedding. Not about the the modern twist. That's exactly wedding. right. <laughs> there are there's great music that is modern that you can use in a wedding, but but this schlocky "love me or leave me" stuff, you know, mm, I yeah. do not want that. I don't like all of this movement of giving roses to mothers and to grandmothers and that stuff that you see at weddings. If I'm sitting in the pew, fine. But if I'm the pastor there, I want to get to the wedding and move it forward. So I have those types of rules. But music is the biggest one. Music is the biggest one. What do you think is the best wedding song then? To sing or to or play to march in and out? Hmm. To, to march in and out. Paco Bell, Canon in D. Hmm. is a great one. Yeah. You know, 
I'm fine Classic. with the here comes the bride thing, the Lohengrin, the Wagner Lohengrin. Yeah. But I don't think most people know the background of that, that that's actually taking place in, in the opera at the marriage of the devil. So, uh, <laughs> really? I did <laughs> so not know that. That's where it comes from. So, <laughs> I don't hmm. think most people know that. Some do now. <laughs> yeah. I can see right. why that would oh, be less say. appealing to like march in on that after you know that backstory. <laughs> or if you get some of the great English and, and more English than German, but some of the great English composers from the 17th and 18th century, you've got all these trumpet voluntaries to march out with. You know, it's joyful music. And so I think the classics are good. Classics are always good. They are. <laughs> are there any big differences between the kinds of hymns, especially in Lutheran churches, that you sing in English versus Spanish versus Chinese or... Are they all relatively similar? That's a good question too. Especially in 2018, things are so different, and uh, mm. with and with the ELW, the Red Book that we now have. Um, I started out, and I continue to do this. Most of the hymns that we use in English, uh, excuse me, in Spanish here at Advent and in Chinese, are very traditional because there is not a lot of music that's written in those two languages that is more, that is religious, that is, speaks to our theology as Lutherans, and that is uh, culturally sensitive. There are some great pieces, and we do those. Last Sunday we had all pieces that are really Latin American at the 1230 service. But most Sundays it'll be very typical, traditional, Germanic and Scandinavian hymn tunes. That's also with the, the first hymnal that was written in the United States for Latino communities was written based on the old red hymnal from 1958. It's called Culto Cristiano. And that was just really, literally a translation for the Puerto Rican community of that Germanic Scandinavian. So that's, if you go to Puerto Rico, go to a Lutheran church, you'll think, okay, if they were singing in English... I'd know what everything is here. Same if you go to, to hmm. East Africa, same thing. Those things are translated. So it would be nice to have more pieces, but there are not a lot of good hymns for the Latino community out there. Maybe some need to be written. Some need to be written. And there are some good composers these days, some good Latino yeah. composers. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. Awesome. The other, the other piece that's difficult, however, is some of the good music that's coming out from, from Pablo Sosa and some others these days requires instrumentations that most of our churches don't have. Oh, you know, like what? You need, like, you need drums and you need bandoneon, um, concertinas or accordions and guitars. Right. And it. very few of our churches, you know, Sion at City Corps at St. Peter's has a little orchestra so they can do some of that stuff. Principe de Paz in Miami has that. Uh, a couple of the churches in Los Angeles have that. But very few others have musicians that can do that. Now, mm. with the, in Brooklyn, the Mexican community, the, and my community in Brooklyn is all Mexican, which makes mm. a difference. Here we've got 17 different cultures or 18 different cultures in our Latino community. Here. many. There, it's all one. It's all Mexican. So there are some things we can do there. We don't have the musicians, but there are some things we can do mm. because there's a, a united culture, and so there are some nice pieces. Long answer to your Wonderful question. <laughs> no, it's, it's 
fascinating because I don't have the language ability to go into that community as it exists like in Spanish or in Chinese. So it's fascinating to hear someone who does exist in multiple different language communities. Yeah, agreed. I'm going to shift gears a little bit and ask a more serious question, if that's all right. After there is a national or local tragedy and you're slotted to preach on Sunday, how do you approach that? And if you want to choose a specific instance or speak generally, it's, a, it's up to you. Uh, let me choose two specific sure. instances. Uh, 9-11. Yeah. I was here, lived here during 9-11. I was in the bishop's office. The bishop, Bishop Bowman, and another pastor, Carla Meyer, and I were in his office talking about a new congregation we were developing, and we watched the planes fly into the towers, and we watched the towers fall. Bishop Bowman had a son and daughter who were down at the North Tower. I had a nephew who was in the South Tower. And so these were very, very personal, close things. At the same time, in those days, the assistants to the bishop also had congregations. So I was serving a congregation in Freeport, Long Island, and had to preach to that community who had fire. We had three firemen who were lost out of that community. Um, what can you say? You, you can't say very much. But you let the gospel move you with the hope of the resurrection. And as Lutherans, that was powerful and is still powerful. That's why I like to do funerals, because you can preach resurrection. Preach resurrection. So in the midst of the suffering, you had that. Now my community there was also Latino. And that was September 11th. If you remember on October 26th, or maybe you don't, 2011, just six weeks later, the flight 287 went down in Howard Beach and 287 Dominicans were killed in that flight. Seven out of my congregation. So within six weeks we had lost to 9-11 and we lost to flight 287. The resurrection is the only hope you have. Yeah. Jesus is there walking beside us. It may not seem like it today. You have to, you have to admit that these tragedies especially when they touch, as 9-11 touched the entire country, and as Flight 287 touched a particular segment of our country, but an entire island nation um, where, where the people come from came from, you have to listen to people go through the journey that where was God in all of this, and God wasn't here, and, and maybe God doesn't exist. And you have to just listen and walk that journey with them and, and not be the preacher or the proclaimer. And yet in the pulpit, you proclaim the resurrection and the hope we have, the hope for those who have gone on to eternal life and the hope we have of being united one day with that. Sometimes I think that we as pastors talk too much. Hmm. Um, in fact, a lot of times I think we talk too much. <laughs> I think we would be better off just listening. Just listening. That's a great question, Kevin, and having experienced those two things, among other things, but particularly 9-11 and Flight 287. Um, 
and having to work with communities. Thank you for answering. You're welcome. I think if I were in that position, I would I would not know what to do. I would feel very at at my wits end. You feel ina- you feel yeah. inadequate. I felt inadequate. Certainly. Really? There, what words can you say when yeah. there's a national tragedy like that? Yeah. And yet, you're in the, that role and people look to you. Yep. It's surprising to me and intriguing that you, you highlight the importance of listening. Because I think when I think of what a pastor does, the first thing that I think of is, is probably speaking. And I imagine other people might think that too. So, I don't know, it's just eye-opening to me that to think about it from the other end, that maybe, maybe listening is more important than speaking for pastors and anyone. I think for anyone, but certainly as clergy for pastors, that's what we get, we're taught in clinical pastoral education. You know, you're sitting oh. at the bedside of someone you don't need to be talking about your aches and pains. You need to be listening to that person and what they're going through at that point in time. Or you're in someone's living room and their husband or their father or their child has just died. You don't need to be talking about the things that have happened in your life or are happening. You need to be listening and just walk on that journey with them in silence. That's a powerful lesson. Mm-hmm. I... I do this thing all the time and I see people do it where a friend or um, a partner uh, is sharing uh, something that they're stressed about or grieving about and I'll be like, oh, I know I know how you feel. Me too, this thing's going on in my life and yada, 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 and I'll launch into my thing. And I think it's coming out of a place to attempt to connect and show that I've had a similar experience, but it often has the effect of making the other person not really feel heard. So I think what you just said, that, that pastoral model is, yeah, just something that I would be interested in modeling myself. I maybe whoever's listening to this might take away as well. So thanks for sharing that. You're welcome. It's only our human nature, you know, Kevin, to want to say something to participate. Yeah. And, and in 2018, we don't like silence, right? We <laughs> don't like silence. It's very uncomfortable, but it's necessary. And to listen to the other person and not discount their story. Amen. You mentioned you learned that in seminary. Are there other things you've learned in seminary that you've kind of carried with you through your years of ministry? Well, of course, uh, you know, sermon preparation, but that has changed so much in seminary. At least 40 years ago, you were taught for every minute you preach, you spend an hour preparing. Wow. So if you're doing a 15-minute sermon, you do 15 hours of preparation. Um, That might have been possible in the initial years as a new pastor. It's not possible these days. So, but, but sermon prep and being prepared, going from the original Hebrew or Greek into English, uh, I more and more 
do say in sermons, you guys have probably heard it, the Greek says this. Mm. I swore initially I'd never do that because it sounds arrogant or whatever. But sometimes it's necessary because there's a very different meaning to the word than comes oh, yeah. across in English or in Spanish or whatever. And so uh, that I do is going from the original languages every week into the preparation for sermon. Before I became a pastor, I was my undergraduate and my first graduate degree are in sacred music and organ, church music. And I did that on purpose because I, as a Lutheran, believe in the centrality of music and liturgy in our worship. You know, so often as American Lutherans, we are, as all Lutherans are universal, we are a church of word and sacrament. But as American Lutherans, since our first Lutheran uh, forebears arrived here in the United States in 1624, we have assimilated into the Reformed Church and the Presbyterian Church and the Quakers and everybody else where the word, the preaching of the word is the only thing in sacrament is secondary or tertiary or not even existent in many of the other denominations. But we are of both. And so I did my undergraduate so that I could know the music and the liturgy and know what's going on and that that maintains that tension of centrality with the word. So that has stuck with me all the while as well, that good liturgy. And we don't, it just doesn't happen on Sunday. You know, we practice the liturgy. Pastor Danielle does that too. We practice what's going to happen on mm. Sunday during the week. Because you need to know where you're going to be turning, where you're going to be moving, what you're going to be facing. Ah, uh, this word, and you can tell when we haven't done it, because you'll hear a little questioning in some of our responses <laughs> yeah, to the yeah. liturgy. Um, or this this prayer is changed, this this liturgical text is changed because it's a different season or it's a special day. So that I've taken with me. Uh, one thing that I've taken with me but we don't do much is the preaching on the Old Testament. I think it really would be, that's what my THD is in, is Old Testament. And I think that the Old Testament is such a wonderful gift to the world it has everything there's nothing on television on the radio and the movies that isn't in the old testament you know it's <laughs> yeah. really all there and it's preparing us to get to the new testament and the coming of christ so i think we need to do more study and more preaching more proclamation on those old testament stories you know how many people even realize or remember that there are two creation stories and they're very different you know yeah <laughs> Yeah, it was a shocker to me when I first heard. It was definitely only a few years ago. So I've taken those things with me. That's a good question. I have a quick follow-up question um, about, first of all, you sold me. I'm excited to hear more <laughs> preaching on the Old Testament. Um, but backing before that, um, when you were talking about practicing the liturgy. So as a, a 28-year-old millennial, I know that one thing, and I'm generalizing, but I think one thing that people my age and younger are really fixated on in our culture is, is authenticity. And things feel feeling organic or unpracticed uh, tend to make them seem more authentic. Mm. So, so I would wonder, but then I also understand the practicality of needing to practice some of those things. So I'm, I'm figuring out how to phrase my question so hopefully I get it. But, you know, 
in worship where we're, we're gathering together to authentically praise God, how do you think that that can still be authentic even when pieces are practiced or intentionally prepared? I think, Kevin, part of it is that, that they are prepared, and so it comes across as natural and not as stilted, yeah. or not as rehearsed, so it comes across as natural. The first time, it shocked me when Pastor Danielle, and I hadn't seen the bulletin on this one, right in the Eucharistic language, liturgy, where we do the Lord is with you, and you also do, you respond, and yeah. also with you. Yeah. And the first Sunday that she had changed it to, God is with you, I hadn't prepared. And all of a sudden, you see that word, and I, it's yeah, shocking, yeah, so I, I know it came across yeah. as stilted, and he doesn't know what he's doing up there. Um, yeah. So it's those things. So I think if, if you're prepared, it can seem natural. Yeah. I think it's the same with rehearsing for a concert, right? Or whatever. Yeah. You have to do the rehearsal, but hopefully it seems natural. And that there are times when it's going to just flow. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. But I think if you can rehearse, be prepared so that you know what's coming. And, and, and at least on Sunday mornings, we always have to be thinking two steps ahead. You can tell when the pastor or the assisting minister or the deacon aren't prepared as well because mm. there's there are pauses or they're doing their thing with their microphone or whatever. But you have to be thinking, okay, what is coming two minutes down the road? I have to have my mic on for that so you can just do it. Nobody pays any attention. Because if you don't, then it gets it gets in the way. Yep. That makes sense. Yep. So if, if you rehearse, I think it can, it can be natural. Yeah. So it's kind of about creating a flow, a natural flow for everyone gathered. Yeah. So, what is your favorite part of e- of like the service or the liturgy? <laughs> right after the peace, when we get to the communion liturgy, I nice. mean, I, I yeah. would I, I would be happy the rest of my life to never preach again. Really? But I'd love to have the communion liturgy, have the liturgy all the way through. Yeah, I'd be fine in not preaching. Now, you know that. Sorry to interrupt you. No, you no, go right your... ahead. Well, I. Just, I I don't know if you knew this, but uh, Pastor Danielle said her favorite part about being a pastor is giving the communion. Or was it her favorite part of the liturgy or part of being a pastor? I can't remember. Favorite something. Was it favorite part of the liturgy also? Yeah, favorite part of the service was giving communion. So that's the same for hers. It's the same. Because, you know, when you're in the pulpit, it's great, but it's you and the world. Yeah, there's but in a, communion, it's, it's that hand, it's that mouth, it's those eyes, you know. And we all have different philosophies, and as you both know, I, I use the person's name when I give communion. Yeah. Um, some, Pastor Danielle does not, but and she philosophically has decided not to do that. Hmm. Um, so, so it's two different styles, and they're both yeah. great problem with mine is that sometimes you forget a person's name or you say the wrong name or whatever yeah so it's more challenging that. for it's sure more challenging but but whether you do or not the names is, a, is something aside you're touching that person you're actually giving the body of christ you're giving the the chalice with the blood of christ you're you're there and our baptized family is alive in mm. that moment jesus is there jesus is there always but Jesus is really there at that moment in time. It, yeah, it's that. It's no longer abstract. It's this that embodiment, both of the connection between the community and of 
Jesus being there. Yep. You know, when I started yeah. out as a pastor, it was in, in the days when people came up to communion rails and they knelt and nobody else was there. It was only the pastor. So you put the wafers in their hand or the bread in their hand. Then you got the chalice and brought the chalice to each one. You know, it took took forever to get communion done, especially in larger churches. But that's how it was in those days. But there was something to that that was really nice because it wasn't rushed. It was, hmm. here's the body of Christ, and then people would eat it, and they'd wait till you came back, here's the blood of Christ. It's that real presence. It's that real relationship of uh, it's it's almost trinitarian because you've got the person receiving communion, you've got the person giving communion, distributing, and you've got God. So it's trinitarian mm. in some ways. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's my favorite part. You could forget I the love sermon. That. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. One thing um, Pastor Danielle talked about um, was the thoughts that usually go through her head as she's um, bowing to the cross and walking out at the end of the service. What kind of thoughts do you have? On that very moment? Yes. I have never thought of that. (laughs) Um, Must be like most of my thoughts, they're empty. Um, The bowing to the cross, I don't know that I consciously think of anything at that point in time, But the bowing to the cross is the same for me as making the sign of the cross. It is a remembrance of our baptism, which reminds us that we have died with Christ. That's what baptism is all about, right? We say that even in the high priestly prayer of baptism, that we have died with Christ so we can rise with Christ. So when we bow to the cross, it's not to reverence the cross. It's to reverence what Jesus has done for us on the Mm. cross and what God did following that crucifixion in the resurrection. So I guess that's what would, if anything, go through my mind that is remembering my baptism. That's awesome. Yeah, I think I think for a lot of people it can, it can appear like just giving reverence, but that's so much more. It's it's so much more actionable. It like or I don't know. It's it's about you and and your connection and relationship with God. It's not just giving reverence, but it's like, it's, this is who I am and I'm remembering this. And now I'm going to go out from worship and respond to this in the world. Right. And you know, when yeah. I, when I was in seminary, um, I was taught and I still believe it's really not in my liturgical perspective and, and practice. It's not even doing reverencing the cross. It's reverencing the altar. Cause remember the altar is, is a representation of the slab where Jesus was laid. Mm. And our altar, a lot of people don't like our altar. Most people, I think, probably don't even look at it. Mm. But you, right in the altar is Jesus being laid on the tomb. It's carved into the altar. Have you noticed that? No. Look at it. At the front of the altar is Jesus being laid in the tomb. Because the altar is the table of Christ. It's, that's why wow. we say, come to the table. It represents where he was laid. Wow. So, so that's that. how I see that as well as um, bowing to the altar, reverencing the altar. Can I ask a question about retiring? Go right ahead. <laughs> it's not on the page, so or what we sent to you earlier. So maybe someone listening doesn't know. It's it's been announced, but we know in in roughly a year, um, next summer, you will be retiring from 
a very long, and as we've learned in this interview, varied and incredible journey of, of ministry as a pastor. So my question is, I guess it's less personal about how you feel about that, but my, my question is, as you're, you're looking ahead to moving on, what, what would be your hope for this faith community at Advent? Mm, oh, wow. It's not the question I was expecting or anticipating. Hmm. Um, I hope, one, that Advent continues to grow as a faith community in this community, that it continues to reach out, both in word and sacrament ministry, as well as in what I call weekday ministry, in the feeding at the altar and the feeding with bags of groceries, if you will, and everything in between. And that they can, this community, which I love so much, continues to do that and to grow in, in, in that way, to be the real presence of Christ in the world, starting Sunday morning in word and sacrament and continuing through the week and growing as a bilingual faith community. That would be my greatest hope and prayer, Kevin, for, for here. Second would be that Advent continues on the journey that, that started when you came, continues with Pastor Danielle and some of our other uh, staff members and some of our key volunteers here, that it becomes more and more creative. I, you know, I'm from the old school at hmm. uh, 65, and there's, I think there is a lot of wonderful creativity out there, both for worship that hmm. we need to begin to look at, whether we're in English or in Spanish, as well as the creativity for ministries during the week. I would love to see a music school here Hmm. where children could come to learn maybe a small choir, learn piano, learn guitar, learn learn Suzuki method, whatever it happens to be. Um, But a a music school here. I would love to see an arts, something with arts taking place here for children and for senior citizens. I find, as I worked more and more with senior citizens, that so many people retire and don't have anything to do. Hmm. Um, But the church could be a place where that could blossom and grow. And I think the arts is a key piece to that, particularly visual arts, meaning everything from painting and drawing to movie making. So the visual arts, I think, would be great. I would like to see an expansion of food programs to be five days a week. I'd like to see a feeding program. Whether it's lunch or dinner or breakfast, uh, five days a week, as we're encountering more and more young people, children who come from families of poverty, who are leaving our neighborhood because of the cost of living just becoming so prohibitive Mm. here, even for whether you're a citizen or a non-citizen, it's becoming very costly on the Upper West Side. But if we could have breakfast programs for people, for seniors, for children, to make sure everybody starts the day uh, with something healthy and then yeah. can go on and learn. How many children don't you see or read about or hear stories about who don't have any food in their stomach and they go to school? We have them in our own congregation 
and they can't concentrate. They can't yeah. do the study they need to do. And senior citizens the same way. It leads to a less healthy life. As you get older, you are more susceptible to other diseases, uh, whether it's common diseases like the cold or flu, but those can lead to dramatic uh, illnesses on from senior citizens, and they don't have the nutrition. So those would be some hopes I have for Advent. Well, I'll go next with the more typical question of what do you want to do in your retirement? Oh, I've got so much to do. Uh, let me <laughs> okay. <tell> you. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, I, I've already spoken with friends out in the Midwest, and I hope to do some supply work at churches. Mm. I've even offered that I would do, I've offered to our bishop here who will be in contact with the, my bishop when I transfer to the synod out there, out to southwestern Minnesota, um, do some interim work, but part-time, I don't want to, like Pastor Ann was full-time, yeah. I don't want to do that, but I would like to do part-time. And the, the rural setting, because I'll be in a very rural community, very rural part of the country, where you have to travel 30 or 40 miles just to get to a doctor, wow. uh, which is not common here in New York, obviously, no. or in many places, but the rural communities are like that. Rural communities and urban inner city communities are very parallel, and I've always thought that. I've always served urban communities mm-hmm. from my first call on. Mm. But the rural is the same way. Urban communities have lots of things that can happen, but many people don't have access, even though you'd think we do. They don't have access because you don't know somebody, you don't have the financial wherewithal to do it, you don't have the support system that you need. Yeah. And the rural area is the same way. And so there is a great, sh- and there's a great shortage of pastors in urban s- settings. Churches like Advent, we don't have a shortage of people who would like to come here. But if you get into the South Bronx, you go into Brownsville and Brooklyn, you go uh, into some of the other surrounding suburbs where, where there are communities of poverty. Yeah, We don't have pastors who want to go to those communities. It's the same in the rural area. You know, I grew up in a three-point parish, even though the, the center point of those three points was 400 members in those days. Mm. You think, why do they have to have three-point parish? Because pastors don't want to serve. Um, so you have to have a pastor who serves multiple parishes. Wow. So I'd like to do a part-time, I'd do a part-time interim at some of those so that there's pastoral coverage. I have lots of hobbies. Um, like what? Um, I, I'm a woodworker, a cabinet maker, furniture maker, so I have lots of things I want to do. Remodel the kitchen will be the first one. Nice. Actually, no, that's that's not true. Uh, build bookshelves in the den will be the first one. And then nice. <laughs> I've started packing my books just because it's going to take a whole year to pack them. I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How many books would you say you have? If you had to guess, that I don't know, but I already have thirty-seven boxes packed, and you oh can't tell us. I'm <laughs> guessing I'm going to have one hundred and fifty boxes of books to oh, move. Wow. Um, wow. So, so furniture making. Uh, I want to travel. You know, I have my house in Africa. We have the family house in Europe, so I want where, to do some traveling. Where around. in Africa? Tanzania. Awesome. So spend some time there. there. Spend some time there. Uh, and it can be any time of year, but if it's be nice in winter because it's cold in Minnesota in the winter. Yeah, right? That's <laughs> the way to do it. Tanzania in the winter. Yep. Endless summer. Endless summer. And where, the, where my house is in, the, in Bukoba, uh, it's 72 degrees year round, 55 at night. <laughs> Sun rises at seven in the morning, sets at seven oh, at night. You know, it's lovely. It's perfect. 
It's the only thing you have to worry about, the long rains in the winter. Well, you're one of the hardest working people I know, so <laughs> I you've definitely earned an endless summer, <laughs> I, I would have to say. So those are some of the things I'm looking forward to. What are some other things that you are very knowledgeable about uh, that don't have anything to do with being a pastor? <laughs> I'm really not. As I told Kevin, this is probably a boring interview, but anyway... Um, well, as we talked, the, the lang languages intrigue me because language is culture and culture is language. So I'll, I will continue with the, the UN language project, and that'll get me back to New York. Of course, friends and family here. I have two nephews and their families who live here, so, and lots of friends, so I'll be back periodically. Um, I'm a numismatist, so. What's what that? Is that? A coin collector. Oh. <laughs> uh, I, is how do you say it? The numismatist. Numismatist. Right. Is the, the formal it's the study term of numismatics, for, right? Which is coins. Yep. And I specialize in ten dollar Indian head gold pieces and British Mondi sets. So I, uh, you know, that's it, one I had no idea about. I knew I knew about like woodworking and, and other things, but wow. So I huh. do those two things. Awesome. Specialize in those. I like to cook. I like to bake. You can tell it. <laughs> As you get older, I like baking. <laughs> What's your favorite thing to bake? Cheesecake, I think, has to be on the top. I've of had it. your cheesecake before. <laughs> it's really good. I will vouch for Pastor Gary. And in it's the winter, so you know, at Christmas time, making truffles, <laughs> mm. making mm. candy. But cheesecake is good. Any time of the year. Oh, yes. The... That's my favorite dessert, both to eat and bake. Actually, so. I'm baking Lorenz's birthday. Lorenz's birthday is this Sunday. Uh, her birthday 95. was actually last Thursday, but we're celebrating. Yeah. Uh, so I'm baking her her two cakes. One is a, a double chocolate cheesecake, and the other is a coconut cheesecake. So mm. you can try them on Sunday. <laughs> well, I mean, I was going to be there anyway, but now I'm definitely going to show up. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for listening. You can find us online at adventnyc.org. And if you haven't given a listen, go back in our feed and listen to the interview uh, with Pastor Danielle.